Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Law School Lounge. I am your host, Crystal Norton. We're so glad you're here for the continued discussion on integrating diversity and equity into the law school classroom. I was excited to welcome back Nicole Dyshlewski of Roger Williams University School of Law for this second part of our series. And I was equally as excited to have a new guest join us, another co-editor on this series named Anna Russell. Anna brings a really unique perspective to our discussion because she is currently a law librarian for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And a focus of this episode is how the information and skills related to integrating diversity and equity into practice play out in courtrooms and once law students leave the classroom. We also discussed during this episode how the integrating doctrine and diversity volumes are critical to the legal profession's future and how both faculty and students can benefit from using critical thinking in items like case briefs. Nicole even dons the interviewer hat to broach the topic of diversity in academic publishing with me. This point arises out of one of the essays adapted for use in the volumes, and we have a very candid discussion about the lack of diversity in publishing and how that can be rectified moving forward. We end our conversation talking about the Doctrine and Diversity speaker series, which you should check out, and it's actually linked below for you in the description. As we talk about this series, we discuss the purpose of the series, how it was developed, and what they hope to achieve with the series moving forward. If you haven't already done so, please go back to episode 21, which is part one of this set of interviews, to hear an overview of the Integrating Doctrine and Diversity volumes, including the goals for the series and the thought behind the series development. Okay, With all of that said, it's time to strap in for this episode full of critical conversations. A big thank you to our listeners for being here. A big thank you to Nicole and Anna for joining me on this episode. We hope you take something away from our discussion. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Law School Lounge. I am so fortunate to be joined today by two wonderful editors in our diversity and inclusion series. We have Anna Russell and Nicole Dyshlewski here to talk about both volumes in this series, specifically how the books are structured, how they went about figuring out different components, and also about the speaker series that goes along with the book and how to use the book in the classroom setting. So welcome to you both. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. We're a little giggly today. So I think this is going to be really fun. <laughs> yes, That's I always agree. the best conversations. <laughs> always. <laughs> well, welcome. And let's get started just talking about how you decided to structure these books. Why did you go with the structure you went with? So we kind of talked in the last podcast about how this sort of the idea of an annotated bibliography being something that law librarians specifically are able to to excel at and think are really important um, as a finding aid. Um, and so the original idea was sort of let's do an annotated bibliography and then it grew into let's do a series of essays by professors for professors paired with um, a uh, annotated bibliography on the different core doctrinal classes. The first book is doctrinal classes in the first year and we're playing a little fast and loose with the word doctrinal because we included legal writing and legal research. And then in the second book, it is sort of a mishmash of some traditional classes like CrimPro and Evidence, then other doctrinal classes that could be offered or uh, as electives. The one thing that we generally don't have is any clinic, any any chapters on clinics or experiential education, um, not because we don't value that, but because, one, we need to save something for our third book. But we thought like those areas have traditionally done such a good job with integrating the core of what they do with diversity issues and client counseling that we didn't need to start with those people, but instead use that available literature to really inform uh, the doctrinal stuff. Um, and so that's sort of where we started. Anna, did you want to add anything? I think I'll add that like in our discussions and our editorial team trying to figure out the format, we were both really conscious of, you know, the digital space versus the print space and how to make this work as accessible as possible and a real nod to you Nicole about really making sure because as we were starting out on this this journey <laughs> we I at least I had a sense of like scholarly law reviews and really making sure that this was you know really top-notch you know thinking about the best law reviews and and you you were really adamant about a practical approach that any professor could dig into and get to it very quickly and that there wasn't a lot of of high like high-minded structure that got in the way of practical knowledge that you could take and move on quickly so i think this book is these these works are really meant to be like at your fingertips and like dog-eared move through quickly at, at your desk that sort of thing they're also like inspirational <laughs> in a way like they're inspirational and motivating in a way that reading a law review article maybe isn't right like there is like the in and some law review articles are inspirational and motivating right, right, right. um but and you can see yourself in them but this is really oh i could do that yeah um or oh i've been teaching this for 20 years and never thought about that but maybe maybe i can try that too and i think that it's not only accessible but it's really human so would you say to then that 
this series in general is very referential in a sense. Like it's not necessarily a book you would just, I mean, I guess you could, of course, sit down and read it from start to finish, but also it's something that is meant to be as a reference, something that people keep on their desks and use time after time as they continue to develop courses and coursework. Yeah, I would say the first chapter or the first like sort of section of each book is essays that hit beyond your particular class. So it's not just contracts or crim pro. It's essays that have wide applicability throughout the curriculum and either to administrators. And then from there, it goes on to sort of these individual topics. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's not something you read cover to cover, although sure, we invite that. It's more something that'll give you an idea and something to go back to. Um, and the annotated bibliography gives you other places to go besides our book. So it's not like, oh, our book, this is everything. It's really like our book, this is a place to start. And then you're each going to be on your own journey of what to do next and how to improve upon it. I would just add to that this this work brings in the widest audience of me. I mean, I don't know if this is too wide a claim, but it it, it has the broadest perspective for the most different types of legal um, professional people. Like I can get a lot out of it in my court setting. Um, a, a contracts professor could get something out of it. An administrator, as Nicole is talking about, can get something out of it. Like um, it's so uniquely structured in a way that I can't think of any other type of legal treatise or legal teaching instruction is like so i'm 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 really proud of that approach you should be um well with you know you mentioned the court setting right so i think in our very first episode and now throughout our discussion so far we've talked a lot about this concept of the doctrinal classroom right and so a big goal of this book and series is to help faculty figure out ways to work within the classroom. But Anna, as I understand it, you bring a different perspective as an editor and some nuanced ideas on how this can be used beyond the classroom. And so if you could explain a little bit about that, I'd love to hear about it. Yes, yeah, sure. So after the first volume was published, my court library, the Ninth Circuit Court Library, worked within our organization and our diversity and equity director to share this work in from the academic setting and then and then the diversity folks were working from the law clerk perspective. So it was a real nice like bridge between uh, law students and then, law clerk, term law clerks. And so we started a lot of discussions back in 2021, 2022, which culminated in a really neat program at the annual judicial conference, brought in deans of law schools to talk about what they're seeing, new and different law students and law student perspectives. And then it also brought together judges and what judges are looking for and what they're seeing from new law clerks. And so like the work that we're doing and then what others are doing are tying in really nicely to make sure that we're as cutting edge 
as and I'm I'm chuckling because courts are not really cutting edge, but like nothing we're trying really to is, really, Anna. <laughs> right. So we're trying to be like as open and as as conscious as where people are at nowadays. Well, and I like how that emphasizes that these things that are being taught in the classroom aren't meant to stay there, right? They're meant to go beyond the classroom, follow people out into practice and into their careers and then into law in the long run. I see Nicole shaking her head, so I think that means you agree. <laughs> I mean, I had this this sort of... Anna brings a real pragmatic voice to what we're doing because in some ways a lot uh, the other of us editors are sort of in the ivory tower i mean not completely susie who you'll meet in a future podcast works all the time with law students and works on you know projects in experiential education but we do spend a lot of our time in academia and anna just has a different perspective she is talking to judges who are in courtrooms every day and judges and law, law clerks and uh, the staff of courts who are are doing the work of law. And so, yeah, I don't I don't think these essays stay in law in law school. I think they go beyond not just because the concepts transfer to the practice of law, but because the people who are being taught in this way graduate and become Anna's law clerks and then become judges. And so once you can sort of see the ripple effects of all of it, you see any little part that we're doing to make changes has this like outsized amazing impact. I, I think about the way in which some law professors and some courts are handling legal writing issues regarding pronouns. So you could say, oh, well, that's an academic issue. Our legal practice professors are, are, are having to or choosing to teach students about using um, non-gendered speech or the they pronoun. Or you could look at it as, and those, the, the briefs that these would, people are writing in legal practice are models of briefs that they'd be writing in practice. And so this is an attorney issue. And then the people receiving those briefs are the judges. And so sort of you see the continuum of how the things we're working on aren't just here in, in legal academia. They're, they're throughout. Another example that came to my mind when you were mentioning that, Nicole, was in um, criminal sentencing and seeing the, um, the updated, I think, criminal law teaching and constitutional law teaching and then it gets translated into the practical setting and there's a lot of changes in sentencing and sentencing guidance because what was done before just isn't isn't working i like that a lot of the stuff you're talking about emphasizes how the book including its structure and everything in it creates space and so I don't know if either of you realize this, but when I graduated law school, I was a law clerk. <laughs> so I was a law clerk through the Attorney General's Honors Program, and I was at an immigration court. And there were a lot of asylum cases that I worked on that raise a lot of these types of diversity and inclusion 
sort of issues, whether it be language or just the very nature of their claims themselves. And opening up the door, allowing for these types of conversations is a really big step because I guess, wow, 10 years ago was when I was a law clerk. I graduated in 2013 and I felt comfortable enough talking to people about it, but it wasn't normal. And it was very, you know, if I brought it up, they were like, oh, I guess I never thought about that or I've never had to have that conversation before. And so I wasn't necessarily received poorly, but I definitely felt like it wasn't normal and it probably should be. And so I appreciate how it seems these materials are starting that conversation in multiple places. I also, the choice we made about how to structure it and the tone that we took and being super practical is to make it more accessible is to say like, we are meeting readers wherever they find themselves on this journey. And so some of the essays are very basic um, and informational and give you a simple thing to try, um, whereas some of the essays are complex and very specific to an exercise on a particular case in a particular class setting. And so, I don't know, I think there's a little something for everyone. And my hope is, is that we as a profession are so successful at having these discussions and advancing our pedagogy that the book is useless at some point <laughs> that people look at it as a relic like oh look at that like old timey <laughs> book where we had to teach people how, how to be respectful about pronouns now like who wouldn't be respectful about pronouns and you know that's probably going to take a long time and it's not going to be uniform across our very diverse and interesting country but that's my hope is that like we don't need a book like this at some point well and i'll i'll add to that i i mean working on this book had it there's so many examples of how it's expanded my perspective and when i um or have orientations with new law clerks when i'm having different discussions with law clerks, um, there are so many perspectives that I might have just missed cues on cultural backgrounds and the absolute interest and hunger for more space in who is acknowledged in in our practical court spaces. And it's once you you're like oh i i didn't know and you can't you can't close the door once you've opened it once you've glanced at our work so i really appreciate that so i guess that leads nicely into this sort of further discussion of how you see the book being used i know we've talked about obviously by professors in the classroom it sounds like it's being used in the judiciary but i guess maybe could you talk a little bit more about how you see maybe a student, an individualized student or a practitioner using this book out in their practice? Sure. So I'll talk about uh, an essay in our second book. Um, so in both volumes, we've included essays from students. Uh, we didn't start that way. Like when we started the project, we weren't like, oh, hey, do you know who law professors really want to listen to about how they should teach? Law students. No, we thought law professors, they know what they're doing and they listen to other law professors. But in both cases, we happened upon law students who were doing what we thought was sort of interesting, innovative work that we wanted to uplift. 
in the first book, there is an article, uh, there is an essay written by Wang Pham, who writes about uh, critical case briefing. So instead of just briefing your cases, that you would use this thing called a critical case brief, which would bring in elements of critical legal theory, not just looking at the case and saying, what are the facts of the case, but also who is this case impacting? What are the what is their race or gender or socioeconomic status or ability of the people? What is being said and what is being not said? That to me has this amazing wide applicability and that it can be used by any law student in any class, whether their teacher wants them to or not. Adding some like piece of information to your case brief is easy to do. And it is a very small thing that can make a big impact on how you think about things. In our second book, we have an essay by a law student who was asked a, the question, like, who writes your case books by one of their professors? And they decided to do like a, a, a quick little dive into who writes and edits law school case books for required first year classes. And it, it's not it's not a perfect scientific study. It really is just a law student doing his best to try to find basic information about who writes and edits the casebook. And he like writes about what the methodology he used. Again, not perfect, but something. He writes about what the problems with the methodology is, but he also writes about what he found. And what he found is there is not a lot of biographical information um, from law school book casebook publishers about their authors and uh, a lot of the casebook authors are of a particular gender and a particular race and what his argument is is we don't know enough about who wrote the casebooks but this is like a great a great thing for us all to think about who writes our opinions who writes the casebooks when they make editorial, who edits them? When they make editorial decisions, who are they editing out? Um, and what facts that might be really important to the parties are edited out because they're seemingly unimportant to the judges or the law or the casebook editors. And so something simple like that uh, is really revolutionary when you ask your students to think about it. And so I think that's a great example of uh, a student who sort of is engaging with this work. And in both cases, we discovered them and they wanted to share of themselves. And now they can't unknow that. They can't unthink about who is writing our case books and what perspective uh, our le legal education may have because of that. And that is also an important example of how things like those type of critical thinking skills in particular carry on beyond just law school, right? Because if you're sitting there and you're analyzing a law and maybe you're looking at legislative history, you're thinking, who wrote this law and why did they write it and what are they not saying, right? So that form of critical thinking is so integral to so many other aspects and the same thing for reading case briefs and the language that's used in a case and all of those elements that people kind of overlook and you're right it's once you see it you can't unsee it and i actually just did an interview of our author renetta mack she writes our book unpacking race in the american jury system 
and we had this whole conversation about some of the case opinions and how the very language used shows obvious bias, right? But they, in their own mind, think they're being completely removed from the situation and unbiased and sort of that whole concept of implicit bias. And the critical thinking skills you're talking about help you uncover those types of things, not just externally, but also internally as well, because everybody comes from somewhere and has their own lived experiences, right? In, um, in 2023, that is thinking like a lawyer. Those are the skills that we are teaching our students and we should be teaching. But also, I would be remiss uh, to pass this opportunity up to say, hey, Crystal, you work for CAP. Can CAP do a more robust job of providing uh, biographical information about casebook authors so that we can really critically engage with the question who wrote or edited our casebook? No, it's a great point. And I was thinking about it when you said it. Really, honestly, one of the main reasons why we don't provide more biographical information on our website is because it changes so frequently with our authors that what we would have on our website would probably be inaccurate within a few months of itself. And so we largely rely on the authors themselves and the school websites to portray that information. And most school websites today, you can find CVs, you can find all their publication lists, which says a lot about a lot of different things, and also just their background. As far as the biographies and the information in the books, those are written by the authors themselves, and we can't really write them for them. Obviously, we do the, the basic editing, but those are theirs to write. And so I'd say, if anything, it kind of is more on them and the schools than it is on the publishers as far as providing that information. If you want more information about just who our authors are, we have them completely listed on our website and they're completely affiliated with everything they do. So, I mean, we do have that information readily available. I think a bigger question you asked and something that I specifically asked about when I was let's not say I was interviewed for this job at CAP because I came over from the online side. But one of the things I told him while he was asking me these what seemingly random questions at the time was how important diversity and authorship was to Carolina Academic Press. And I asked that because it's important to me. And I was very clear that it would be a priority for me. Uh, and so Keith was very receptive to that and said it's a priority for Carolina Academic Press as well. And I think you can see that by the fact that we published your series, we continue to publish series in this space, and within regard to casebooks, we continue to diversify the perspectives offered in our casebooks, but also the authorship of those casebooks. And so, just like law schools, <laughs> publishing, I wouldn't say, is a fast area to grow, but there are changes, and I think positive changes. Did that answer your question, interviewer? <laughs> I mean, at the end, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, we're, that's why we're here, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're here on purpose. We we joined this team right. on purpose, right? No, and and the same thing here. You know, when I got this opportunity, I was like, yeah, imagine all of the wonderful information I can help get out into the world, right? So, thank you for asking that question. I appreciate it. <laughs> Anna, did you have something you wanted to add? 
I was just going to add that these sorts of conversations are always so energizing and you just, you're like, want to go forth and do good work. And it was a call, a separate colleague was chatting and saying kind of a, a quick summary that like in the nineties, like diversity and inclusion was a numbers game. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's well said. Like that's, that's, that's right. It was a numbers game, but you, and, and folk and systems and organizations would just get the numbers and then they would just go about their business as usual. But there was a lot missing from the numbers game. And I noticed that like in my own work and in courts that it's no longer enough to just have the numbers game, right? You know, obviously. Um, and seeing where the failures were when we just we just got the numbers and then left left folks alone and didn't include and didn't and didn't see where the um the unwelcomeness was and the uncomfortableness was and then you would just be like why isn't why isn't everybody like coming to the table like we had the numbers like <laughs> so like these this this work and then uh, the branching off of series and more conversations have been so helpful and then you wonder like why was this needed but it really was yeah i mean there's this whole question of not just representation but meaningful representation right and i talked to renetta a lot about that as well because we were talking about it in the sense of the jury system, right? Imagine being that one person and tokenism, right? What are you going to say? Do you feel safe to even say anything, right? There are so many additional layers to that initial first step that happened and whether or not it meaningfully had any impact just because someone was present, right? And I'm so glad you're addressing that on a broader scale because it is something that should be addressed on a broader scale in my opinion. Uh, for whatever my opinion is worth. But uh, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Is there, did you have anything else to add before we talk about the speaker series that y'all are working on and kind of why and how you developed that? Um, um, no. <laughs> Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, then let's talk about the speaker series a bit. Perfect. So what exactly is sort of the general basis for the speaker series um nicole can i tee you off yeah because like so we were on this high after we had published the first um the first book the first volume and then like some of us lesser <laughs> mortals were like let's rest but then nicole was like no <laughs> we need to keep the momentum going. And so, Nicole, is that a good enough yeah. like, platform for you to die from? <laughs> so, uh, right. Uh, the book came out and there's this like two to three week period of, oh my gosh, we have a book. We have a book. Let's send it to our grandma, that type of thing. And then um, I got a, an email from our then uh, Ralph Tavares, uh, the the DEI director at Roger Williams at the time, and was like, hey, I'd really love to throw you a book launch party, but it's COVID. So that that'd be like the lamest party ever because um, no one can really come and they all have to stand six feet apart and we can't have 
champagne and could we do like an online event? And I'm like, oh, let me think about it. And then I came back and I was like, here's what I would like to do. Instead of an online event, I'd like to have five online events. (laughs) And he was like, okay. And I said, if we have an online event celebrating us, like who wants to come to that? Also, keep in mind, most of us are librarians and most of us do not want to step into the spotlight at all. We don't like having our, uh, not not me, but the, the other librarian. <laughs> I was going to say, you don't not, seem very shy, Nicole, if I do say so. Not. I am definitely one of like the 10 law librarians in the country who are extroverts, but I know who my team is and not, not, not loving being interviewed or our pictures being taken or us standing in the spotlight. And I thought, okay, well, what could we do? And I thought, there are some skills and topics that transcend doctrinal subjects but are universal what if we did five events online um for free and we we spotlight authors from the book and some students and talk about sort of some universal themes um and that will sort of keep the momentum going and it'll allow the the essays in the book to stand out but also it won't allow them to be stagnant because the author who wrote it can then say oh I said this but I meant this and I also do this other thing and it will allow us all to sort of engage in real time instead of it just being words on a page and so my institution's like well everyone I think was like what are you doing like why why are we creating so much work and I thought no like I can see this this is going to be cool. And um, so everyone was like super supportive. The The editorial team was like, yeah, absolutely. We'll help you. We just don't want to be in front of the camera. And I was like, oh, like, I love talking to people. Like, I want to grow up and be Crystal Norton. Like, this is like, I love like talking to people, like just asking questions. And this sounds great. It'll be really fun. There are all these people all over the country who have this wisdom. Let's get them on a Zoom and talk. And so we started to do that. The first year we were co-sponsored, uh, Roger Williams co-sponsored with CUNY Law and the publication Jurist. And then our second year, the University of California, Berkeley School of Law and George Washington Law School joined. Um, and so we had like wide support from both coasts and we started having these conversations. And I just email people and say, hey, I, I want to talk about this topic. Would you be willing to show up and Zoom for an hour? And people do. And it's been amazing. The current statistic is we have had attendees from something like 85% of US law, uh, USABA accredited law schools. Like, wow. it's not like a few people show up. It's like people show up in droves. And it's never the same. There's a consistent group of people who come. Um, but then there's people from all over. We've had people from government come. We've had people from law firms come. We've had people who adjunct teach, but are also judges. We've had people from all over come just to learn the thing, to learn about how to speak appropriately about uh, to your transgender students or how to speak appropriately about uh, it, it, tri- people from different tribes or indigenous people who and the practice of quote-unquote Indian law, um, or a a particular technique that one could use when things go bad in the classroom or mistakes people have made and how to fix them. 
And it's really resonated with people. And we're really lucky. We're in year three. We just finished our third event of year three. And we'll continue in the spring. And it's amazing. I email people and just say, hey, can you give more of yourself? Thank you for writing that chapter essay. Now can you show up and answer these questions? And it's amazing. Last year, I interviewed Erwin Chemerinsky for one hour. All about like, hey, you know, what do we do when things go wrong? Like, what what are we supposed to do? Like, you're an expert. Help us. Um, And that's like so cool. It's so cool that he's so willing to give up his time to talk to me, but also that what we have, what, what we choose to write about and what we choose to to sort of spend our, our time doing matters to other people. And it has given us a tremendous platform to uplift the voices of people who are genuinely struggling to do this work well. Um, and you see that it's not easy and it's not perfect. And sometimes the struggle to do it also intersects with someone's identity, as, uh, uh, whether it's their their gender or their race um, or their age. And they work through all this while we're on Zoom talking about it. And I just I think it's an amazing opportunity we have to uplift the voices of others, but also to share information that's helpful with our community. And I'm just really thankful for the co-editors for going along with this for uh and for the institutions for sponsoring it and you know people who show up and listen yeah i would just add that nicole's vision is so so clear and so big that like it's often the, the when it's first when she's developing a kernel of a new project i'll just i'll be like i don't in my head, I'll be like, I don't, I don't see it, but I know it's going to be great. So I'll just strap in <laughs> and I'll just come along for the ride. And then as things unfold, I'll be like, oh, I get it. <laughs> because there's so many layers of systematic way of tradition and ways in which it has always been done that it can be really hard to be um, on board and embrace what Nicole has already envisioned that it's 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 been so neat and I have learned so much and it's just it's very cool and one thing I wanted to add about the speaker series is that it's not just a a different format for what's in the book it's like another another layer of like here's something that you might not have thought of and and another way in which to learn it in a really um, accessible auditory way it's just so neat (laughs) and i totally get the speaker series now it's so cool (laughs) well it sounds like it's been a success so i hope that it sounds like it's going to continue and we'll continue well into the future. Is that right? Yeah. For now, as long as it's still helpful to people, um, I, what I love about it is I keep learning. Um, like I, I've had these moments where someone will say something. Like I think about Tif- Tiffany Graham. She she's a, an associate dean at, at Turo, uh Law School. Sometimes when she talks, I'm just like, whoa. Like I didn't think of that at all. And like I totally should have. 
And so there, there are just these moments where somebody like kind of gives you the gift of a different perspective, of a different way of thinking. And it just like hits you in the face like, oh, wow, that was dumb. Why didn't I think about that? But we're so fortunate that people keep on uh, people keep on showing up and people keep on responding to my emails. And uh, so far, uh, no one has gotten tired of us yet. So that's good. Well, I, I'm not tired of you guys yet. So <laughs> I'm so fortunate <laughs> to have you here. And I just want to thank you for all of the care you've taken with creating these books and creating the speaker series because, you know, I can just see a lot of trends within our discussion so far and just the amount of respect and how humble you all are coming into this is why it's going so well for you because it's an honest perspective to come from that not everybody can present when talking about these types of topics. And I also think that the speaker series is another way that y'all are holding space for people to have these conversations. And at the beginning of this episode, we talked about the books going stale and no one ever having to use them. But the reality is, too, that nothing is ever perfect and there's always more ideas to share. And so I think the speaker series is a way for you to kind of carry on the legacy of making sure that these things are always considered by everybody and to kind of hold that continual conversation that is important whenever you're talking about integrating diversity. That was um, so kind of you to say. Um, and like, we we really appreciate the platform yeah. to talk about it because we're doing this because we love it and we believe in it. And that's been consistent throughout. I do think sometimes we don't take enough breaks uh, but I also own that that is 100% my fault and no one else's fault. And yeah, you're laughing because I'm going to email you about starting book three soon. Um, but the, I credit what success we have to this being a team, that we're all in this together. Um, and it is it helps us have a better end product. It also helps us have a better process. Um, and so the 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 team part of it is important. Like I, I can be like really stressed out and grouchy and like we need to do this. But then you hear like Anna laugh at me about something and you're just like, OK, girl, stop taking yourself so seriously. <laughs> um, and that's like that's nice. I don't I also um, about the speaker series. It's kind of nice to have something to show for what we're doing. Because, like, you can't carry around your book everywhere you go. Like, oh, have you got a book? <laughs> a book. But the speaker series is, like, this continual thing. Like, hey, if you're interested, stop by the speaker series. Or, And so, like, I, I don't know. It's nice to have something beyond a book which seems somewhat pompous and sometimes, like, kind of removed from reality. Whereas the speaker series is, like, we're just we're just there doing it. Um, and so that's been nice. It's been nice having something my mom can come to. Um you know, like my mom's not going to come and watch me teach in class, although I'm right. really sure she would. But like, you know, I think she might. <laughs> your mom can come to your speaker series and like cheer you on in the audience. And like, I like I forced my boyfriend to go like, hey, remember today's integrating doctrine and diversity. And he's like, you know, I have a job. And I'm like, right. And you can put it on while you're doing your job. Um, But when do you get that in academia? Like, we don't have like things that we can like be proud of and show other people. And this speaker series has like been 
I think like really fun for that reason. I would just say Nicole like has is guiding a great team through like she's carving a tunnel from the you know like the numbers game and then and then our organizations didn't know where to go from that. We would just bring people in and then we would sort of wash our hands and be like I don't know what else to do. And Nicole is is creating a whole <laughs> creating a tunnel to a new approach and it's it's so joyful. It's a lot of hard work, but it's it's so it's I it's so much fun and and meeting the people and that we're meeting is just it's just a dream and I couldn't I couldn't be more thankful to be a part of this team. I I just it's really neat. So thank you, Nicole. Gosh, you're both be really nice today. <laughs> you make it sound like we're not usually nice. <laughs> I don't know what you're trying to say, hey. but we still have another episode to record. So <laughs> right, keep that in you mind. Know. <laughs> so you Crystal, like I met you once, and I'm like, oh no. Why would we do one episode when we could do three episodes? Like, uh, my brain doesn't, like, turn off. It's just like, oh, let's create more work to do. <laughs> but it's always fun. Well, I would say, and we're all grateful for all of your hard work. That's for sure. But it, <laughs> as much as I would love to sit here and talk to you all day, uh, is there anything else you wanted to discuss in our episode here? Or are we going to call it an end for now? So we just were really looking forward to this publication of our second work in this series. And who knows what the future will hold. No, that sounds great. And we're so fortunate to have y'all as CAP authors and part of our team because, as I said at the outset, this is the type of stuff that I wanted to make sure got out into the world when I joined CAP. And so I'm so grateful to be here with you. And I can't wait to see y'all next time. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes part two of Integrating Doctrine and Diversity here at the Law School Lounge. Again, a big thank you to Nicole and Anna for their time and for their great thoughts during this interview. I really appreciated that this was a very full conversation where all of us shared different perspectives and different thoughts also, as they continue this journey with me on the podcast, I am so grateful for how candid and humble and open they are with sharing their experience throughout this process and what they hope to see their work achieve out in the legal profession. I know that our discussion has left me with things that I want to reflect upon both personally and professionally, and that is their goal. So I hope that any listeners out there feel that they can walk away and say the same. Don't forget that we do have a third and final part for this series. You will see that in your feed next week. If you don't already, please be sure to give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at Law School Lounge. We would love to hear from you and it keeps you posted on all of our new episodes. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you learned something and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>